If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Professor Strevens, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. It is always good to talk to uh, interesting and, and smart people who 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 think about things um, that the average person like myself doesn't get time to think on. So um, let's kind of get me, give me your background. What kind of got you into philosophy, into the things that you think about, um, childhood curiosity, or just something along the, <laughs> along the way that shaped your path? Well, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a scientist, um, a physicist, in fact. Uh, and then I, I got to university and started um, studying science, and I found it intellectually fascinating. But I realized uh, that the, the lifestyle of a scientist, which is 99% in the, in the lab running experiments or making observations and so on, was really not for me. And in fact, um, my book, The Knowledge Machine, which I think we're going to talk about, is, is you could... You could um, you might understand that as, as me explaining to myself ultimately what it was about the scientific lifestyle that 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 I I was not so excited about. So instead, I went for the total life of the mind as a philosopher of science, um, where I get to think about science 100% of the time uh, uh, in the land of concepts and so on without actually having to lay my hands on bits of equipment or find, find whether w- wiring is faulty or run the statistics or anything like that. Is it true that people become philosophers so they don't have to answer questions? <laughs> well, I think there's a, there's some truth to that. People become philosophers because they like to ask questions and they <laughs> like to talk about questions and they like to find ways in which those questions are much harder to answer than you might have thought. Mm-hmm. But also I think most of us actually do ultimately want to answer the questions, even if in many cases we're not quite there yet <laughs> after a few thousand years of trying <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting field, which is the field of I don't know what the what the um, I guess it's probably a Latin word for philosophy. I don't know where it comes from, but it, it, it's just the field of thinking and, and trying to think through complex issues. And from your perspective, how important is it for philosophers to be well rounded, um, or should they be laser focused? Because you can you can think about you know, building a bridge, maybe very, very engineer, very scientific. And there's, there's, there are variables that you should consider and anomalies, but, but after a lot of bridges, you probably have a lot of those things considered with philosophy. There's a lot of ways to view things, a lot of ways to nuance it out. So how, how do you think about that issue? And then how do you um, put that into practice? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, sometimes I think of philosophy as the art of answering questions questions that that nobody has any established techniques for answering so it's it's as 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 you put it so nicely it's the exact opposite of building the bridge Mm -hmm. Um, or it's like every time you're building a totally new type of bridge in a completely new kind of situation so the expertise of a philosopher is dealing with 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 many many intellectual unknowns Um, and that means i think that that Philosophy appeals to people, and I, I'm definitely one of these people who are very generalist in their thinking, who kind of want to know everything, because you never know what's going to come exactly. in handy for solving the next problem. Um, there is nevertheless a certain kind of expertise still to building an, an argument or something like that. It's very abstract, though. Um, and also a certain kind of intellectual inclination to really dig into the foundations of things. I mean, in a way, maybe the Philosophers are also the opposite of engineers in the sense that rather than kind of keeping things standing, they want to tear them down uh, to make sure that they were built properly in the first place. Yeah. It's almost like you have, um, you know, Spock on one hand and, and kind of Kirk on the other or something like that, or maybe Bones. Mm-hmm. But because when you think about, you know, kind of an engineering mentality or maybe a scientific mentality, it is, there is kind of these controls and it's kind of rigid on some level. Uh, you do want to explore, but you kind of want to, have some something to measure to to, to to think about um but when you get into the realm of thought and this is kind of the link for me that that i find interesting is um i had on a, a professor the other day um is this this is already out by the time this came out and he's talking about how societies are are built um and mm-hmm. access to energy infrastructure was his thesis um and, and, and he's saying you know this is the way that the societies evolve so on and so forth uh, and kind of what I said was, well, there's actually a moral argument there that that's 
the way that society should be built. So you kind of have this argument. And, and he said, well, from a pure data standpoint, and I agree that, you know, America and, and how it produces energy in these systems is far better than the, um, um, I don't know, Senegal. Um, okay, so yeah, I, I get that. But then there is a moral question about, is that the right way for uh, civilizations to evolve? Um, and, and so the, even even data and analysis can give you certain answers, but it can't answer the question about, is this the way we should proceed? And and it's quite interesting to talk to people because they'll, they'll, they'll present cases that are logical, that are factual. Um, but then there's that, that that morality or ethical question that's always tied to these these inputs and analysis, it, it seems. Yeah, that's 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 right. I mean, in philosophy, we're always straddling the gap a little bit. So I'm a philosopher of science who's really interested in the way that science actually works, but at the same time, always asking the question whether uh, uh, there's maybe something wrong with the way it works. Maybe maybe it wasn't engineered the best way to begin with. Uh, maybe it could be better. Um, and slightly different perspective on the same question. And um, this is this is in fact closer to what I want to say about science. Sometimes it seems like there's something about um, a practice like science that is that is wrong or badly thought out or that could be improved. But looking really closely, you see that it has actually has some some unexpected good function. So mm-hmm. so there is a, a kind of a um, a theoretical wrong, but a practical right, all wrapped up together in the very same practice. And so where do you put like epistemology in when you're thinking about these issues? Like how important is that question to be answered when you're when you're thinking through looking at these things from various perspectives? I mean, that's my my whole life is is thinking <laughs> epistemologically, if you like, about about um, the I mean, about the foundations of knowledge, about the foundations of scientific knowledge in particular. But how, how do you answer the question of epistemology? Because, okay, to make it a, a crazy example, me and you don't know that T Rexes are no longer around. We can't. We can't actually prove that, right? So we, we have strong reasons <laughs> to believe it, but 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 with the, with like absolute certainty, we can't actually prove it. Um, but there's no T Rexes around. Um, so th- so you kind of have that kind of an analogy that that's out there. Um, but then you you get into other things. You start thinking about well, um. You know, how do you know what you know and, and how do you weigh that? So how do you go through balancing that kind of scientific phil- philosophical approach to epistemology? Yeah, my, you know, because I'm so much involved with science, I'm very, very much involved with, with knowledge that's always, uh, as you say, not proven. We have plenty of evidence, but we never know anything for sure. Um, but at the same time, a lot of philosophers would like to kind of, as it were, know for sure what the best type, the best way to do that kind mm-hmm. of inquiry is, you know, to lay down some laws of logic, if you like, that are incontrovertible. Nobody could doubt them. Nobody could dispute them that tell you how to go about getting the evidence together to to decide a question about, you know, whether the whether the uh, <laughs> whether T-Rex is still around, <laughs> um, whether there's really such a thing as dark matter. Um, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, I'm in my in my own work. I've tended not, uh, maybe influenced by science itself, um, not to insist on that kind of logical certainty. To find a method that actually, given our given our particular context, given the the raw material, which is human beings, human minds, which are limited in all sorts of ways. Uh, uh, a method that kind of works well in a particular situation, but there's not the kind of the all purpose guaranteed for all time way of getting things right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I'm, I'm less of a traditional epistemologist and more of a, um, more of a, I guess, a, 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 an observer of, of existing practices. You know, well, what is it that scientists are doing? Why does it work so well yeah. when it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, when I think about these scientific um, studies or tests or whatever they're coming to, the, the question that I always struggle with is, um, I hate to say the pre-scientific era because that's not true, but maybe pre-industrial revolution era. Um, mm. The things that we say that we know about that era, to me, are not, there's they're a lot more what we think we know than what we actually know. But a lot of, a lot of, if you get into various scientific issues of the day, um, when you kind of un- unpeel some of these these layers, 
a lot of it is built upon things where the scientific instruments, the techniques weren't weren't as sharp or precise. We've kind of built upon that. But then looking back at that, it, we should have a general knowledge, a, a general answer that um, our ability to recreate the past, especially before we could measure it, probably isn't as mm-hmm. good as we think it is. Um, mm-hmm. Just like it's hard for us to recreate things even today. And so that, that question of epistemology and how, as, as we go along, how we evaluate things, go back and look at what we thought we knew. It's always interesting when I think about these topics. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, you know, there's usually, or, or at least we we eventually get to a point, um, or, or you know, so far so good, where we're, where a, a science is, feels like it's fully mature. We finally understand our instruments. Um, everything is dialed in. Um, we're controlling all the sources of noise and confusion and uncertainty. But usually, we actually reach that point long after we we, we need to. Um, it's it's yeah. far before we reach that point that we really hit on all the really, really deep and important ideas about what's going on about say the 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 way that say gravity works um, or the the um, the geological and biological history of the Earth. Back when our instruments are much more questionable and we don't really know how to answer a lot of questions about about what works and what doesn't and why it works so there's there's a sense that science often finds the most important things when it's still partially just groping in the dark not really knowing what it's doing later on we can look back and see why 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 we found what we found but at the time it seems what's working is something that's uh, much more much more provisional um and, you know, this, I think this is one of the great insights of uh, 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 a lot of the work that's been done on the history of science in the last 50 years by historians and sociologists and philosophers, that science is not this kind of certain, careful, logical process that's carefully sifting fact from fiction and at every stage can give a full justified account of itself. Um, uh, rather, um, it's much more improvised um, uh, uh, and no two scientists often even agree on exactly why they're why they're doing what they're doing. You know, you get a little bit of a sense of that. I think everyone, the general public, has seen a little bit of that in action in, in the, during the pandemic, when when in the situation where, of course, everyone has to act as quickly as possible. There's just um, a tremendous amount of uncertainty and disagreement about things like the um, effective masking. Um, you know, just the the, the the means of transmission of the virus and so on, you really see everyone at sixes and sevens. Um, we're still kind of figuring some of that stuff out. But 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 this sort of chaotic element of science is 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 so in in reality is in such contrast to the the logical self-image or ideology or self-presentation of science that you get in a kind of a high school account of the scientific method and so on. Yeah, yeah. It's well <laughs> To me, yeah, you covered a lot, a lot of ground. You talk about the COVID stuff and mm-hmm. um, the science coming out, and it, it's weird looking back and in the moment, um, who do you trust? How do you know trust them? Like all these questions of epistemology and and beliefs and stuff and normal normative practices and stuff. It, it's uh, there, there's a there's probably spent a couple hours on that alone. Um, but let's get to the book just for a second here. The Knowledge Machine: sure. How Irrationality Created Modern Science. Um, unpack the title for us, and then why the book itself. So I, I wrote the book because I got so interested in this chaotic element of science. The fact that 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 um, picture of science as a kind of a logical machine um, really turns out to be very far from the truth. Um, at the same time, I'm not a science skeptic in any way. Quite the opposite. Um, it seems to me science is this immensely powerful knowledge-producing machine, as as in my title, but. Obviously, the way the knowledge is being produced, um, the reasons for science's success are, are not are not a matter of having a this indisputable logic that everyone is following along. There's just an enormous amount of disagreement at any time among scientists in any field that's sort of where the questions are still wide open, where progress is being made about how to even interpret the evidence. Okay, so that's the that's the question that 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 motivated me to write the book. Um, and and the answer I, I I came up with, which is you know building on the on the work of a lot of people thinking about science, is is that the single really important thing about science is is more a matter of process um, 
uh, in the sense of not a kind of a logical process, but a, a psychological process where scientists uh, kind of agree to keep on arguing by um, by uncovering empirical evidence. So at, at any given time, there may be a lot of disagreement about what the evidence shows, but scientists all agree to resolve those arguments by going and digging up more evidence, mm. as it were. And that that's a very open-ended process, and it's not a process that depends on any logical rule to tell you how to interpret the evidence. But but that in itself has turned out to be crucial to, to the success of science because it's turned out that that little facts, little bits of evidence that are really, really difficult, expensive, time-consuming to produce, you know, measurements to the... Tenth decimal place of the positions of some stars, or 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 digging down into the into geological strata in a thousand different places, um, in 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 some island or wherever. This kind of just hard and often intellectually in itself not very rewarding work, actually turns out to be crucial to the advance of knowledge. And and the most single most important thing about science is not some kind of logic, but a a kind of a motivational scheme for pushing scientists who, after all, come into all of this because they love ideas, pushing them to do that kind of hard, 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 um, not very intellectually exciting work of just sort of getting their instruments to work or digging those holes, making those measurements. So the whole thing is about about motivating science, modern scientists to do what, say, the old Greek scientists did not do, which is just pay attention um, spend 99% of their lives and of their energy paying attention to these tiny little facts. That's the, the key to the machine. When you think about complex models, um, um, you know, it seems that what you're alluding to here is if you have a, a model predicting whatever, um, it has a ton of variables in there. If someone were just off a, just off a few spots, uh, a few few places, and you could the whole model can be off by orders of magnitude. So is that kind of the or the or the, the old analogy? Like if you if you have a rifle aimed and it's off a centimeter, what you know x amount of miles, it'd be off x amount of feet or miles, whatever it is. Is is that kind of the mentality you talk about paying attention to these details that you're trying to think about? I think it's so. Let me give you a historical example. You know, someone uh, uh, Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who lived you know two and a half thousand years ago, mm-hmm. um, had a whole a whole kind of scientific system for explaining the way the universe worked, you know, and in particular why the why the um, uh, uh, the planets all orbit. Well, in, in in his view of things, all orbit the Earth, not the Sun. Um, you know, so a whole story um, about how this worked. And what he was really concerned to do was explain the sort of the you might say the sort of high level qualitative facts, the really interesting facts. Why is it that these great big objects in space move the way they do? Or, you know, why is it, why do we see rainbows? Mm-hmm. Those kinds of questions, which are, of course, in some ways, the really interesting questions. But it turned out that the key to actually making progress on a question like the orbits of the planets, you know, the theory of gravity, turns on coming up with a theory that makes very precise predictions about exactly where any given planet is going to be at any particular time. So you might have thought you could do it all thinking at a high level philosophically without having to make very precise measurements. But in fact, the, the way forward was to write down these mathematical equations that made these predictions. And then you could see in your equations how gravity really worked, or at least the best story you could have at the time. Mm. So it was like the, the whole, the, the answers to the really big, exciting questions about the universe are, um, are written down in these tiny little details where two theories that sort of say more or less exactly the same thing at a broad qualitative level, you know, there's a million different theories you can come up with for why the planets go around. Let's just say the sun now, but there's there's only a few that will get the 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 positions or the speeds of the planets exactly right. And we, by by paying attention to those details, we see what the really good theories are. Mm. Okay, so would you say then, that's helpful, that. To use my analogy from the the professor I had on a, a few days ago talking about the energy systems, um, then the problem becomes how to use this information, how to think about this information. Because if we have to get down to the granular, 
um, to reach these conclusions and to understand things, you still haven't answered the the larger question of what relevance is this? How should, you know, how does it fit in a larger society? How does it impact larger decisions? Because you you might have these inputs and this analysis, but you still have to answer this other side, which is kind of this overarching high level thought. Are you did you say um, the big big questions about how the knowledge is useful? Yeah, to yeah. So, so for instance, right. obviously. Um, if you take the planet, I can't think of a great example of why it matters if we go around the sun or not, but there probably is some, there probably is some relevance there. I'm just too stupid to know it, but I'm just, but, um, but when you're, when you're getting granular and you're trying to get these answers to questions at a granular level, so there's a lot of time, energy, effort, and you come and say, we think this because of this, that mm-hmm. might answer that question, but that doesn't answer how that fits into larger narrative, larger society, how we think about what to do with this information now. Um, so you might have a yeah. fact. So I'll give you, I, we'll make an example here. You said, mm-hmm. well, if we said, well, the the, the earth is warming, whatever they say it is, uh, you know, one, two degrees Celsius. Okay, let's just assume for sake of argument that that's factual. That has nothing to do with what we do with the information. Like that's a that's a separate set of questions that have to be dealt with. And, and sometimes it feels like in these arguments, we have this data point and everyone goes, this is true, this is true, this is true. And it's like, well, there's a whole lot of other questions that get left out when you just focus on, the granular, if it as it will. Yeah, I mean, so a really interesting thing about science is that often the 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 kind of the these little facts that are so essential, but also so hard to put together, the collection of those facts actually precedes. It comes before um, we either see how they're relevant to the big ideas, mm-hmm. or um, to answer your question directly, see how the big ideas are really important for making the world a better place. So you know. Something like theories of gravity. Um, uh, one of the first uses of those, I guess, was for um, for uh, uh, calibrating artillery. But later on, you know, the, our ability to put satellites into right. orbit sure. uh, is is a is a good example of just how useful that has ultimately turned out to be. But that's, of course, hundreds of years after Newton put together his theory of gravity, and Newton was doing his work, you know. Um, uh, a good 50, 60, 70 years after really precise observations of the movements of the planets were made by the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe. And it was really the precision of Tycho's observations that made it possible for Newton to test his theories that yeah. then have turned out to be so useful for us. So a weird thing about science, one of the things I'm trying to explain, is that people, scientists are motivated to to um, to dig up this data to create this data without necessarily knowing how valuable it's going to be. They're really sort of becoming, there's a thing, something about science, the sort of the whole character, cultural character of science turns people into, or when it fails, they like me, they go off and become philosophers instead, turns people into these, these into, into, into data obsessives, if you like, Mm. who just sort of, start to see this enormous value in just being in the lab or being in the observatory and making these measurements or, you know, mapping out complex, very complicated structures that that are still mysterious, um, sort of just sort of creating a, a, a map of the universe in vast detail without really being able to see clearly where it's going or what it will be useful for. So much of the that, time anyway yeah, and that's yeah. and that's the that's something i think that really needs to be explained how do how do people get like this ordinary people are not like that ordinary people are going to say as you just said to me how before i spend the next 10 years of my life making these measurements tell me tell me what i'm going to get out of it tell me how it's going to be useful but scientists are much more happy just to sort of contribute to this body of knowledge and and um hope for the best I think that needs, like I say, I think that needs explanation. It's not just that there, there's not, it's not that scientists are weird people. A few are, of course, but many of them are just ordinary professionals. It's something about the structure of the institution itself, the social structure of the institution that turns this gathering of empirical details into a kind of a game that they want to win. Yeah. So they're on a quest. They're not really sure where the results might lead them to or the relevance of the results. Um, and, and then you mentioned that um, Newton, you know, 70, 80 years later, he starts looking at this. Um, and of course we built upon him from there. So on the average side of the equation where, where I sit, how then, how then do you do, does, should the general public take scientific 
progress, discovery, understanding that the scientists might not be, they might have the right information, but they might not have the right grasp on where it fits. Also, you don't want to diminish important discoveries because it could change the world. So how do we, on the average side, how do we deal with that information? It's not, I mean, it's not easy, that question to answer. Most For, for a lot of things, it's okay just to sort of let science sort it out and then we, they, scientists can report back when they really have, have resolved the disputes. But if, with things like uh, climate change um, or, or COVID, obviously we want answers before mm-hmm. uh, all disputes have been resolved. We want to be able to go into the kind of the, into the fray and, and figure out at least which, what kinds of questions have been settled and which not. And, you know, to when, when these questions are terrifically important, like the ones I just mentioned, often there's what, what happens is some group of people is kind of designated, as it were, to go in and do this job. Um, so we have, say, for climate change, the UN coordinated body, the IPCC, which is supposed to kind of figure out what it is that we know so far uh, or, or with what level of certainty about climate change. You know, there's a lot that's still in dispute. There's some stuff that almost everyone agrees on. There's some in-between stuff to kind of somehow condense all of that into a hundred pages or so of advice. Of course, it's always going to be an approximation and to some extent kind of a guess, but um, but better that than the alternative, which is just to throw up your hands and say, uh, we have no idea. Likewise, of course, with COVID, it's a, you know, it's going to be a chaotic process when it matters. We probably just need to, we need, I think we need, need some sort of intermediate Immediate body, whether it's you know uh, 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 a bunch of a bunch of um, uh, wise old figures in the profession, or or science journalists, that's their day to day profession after all. But we need some kind of middle person, some middle interpretive figure to 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 to, to be the go between, so that as ordinary people we can we can have some knowledge of of some derive some benefit from from um, the scientific. The, I mean, I'm not sure if knowledge isn't quite the right word for it yet, but the, all of the scientific information we have, mm-hmm. it's a hard problem. I think it's a hard problem, and we shouldn't ex- expect anything like a perfect solution to that problem. It, it's a hard, a, yeah, it's a hard ahead. problem. You have a lot of information coming at you. Um, to your point, it's, it's impossible for the layman to, le- to read and study all the literature on there, and even if they could. I'm too stupid to understand it if I could read it. So I don't have time to read it. And if I, uh, if I, I were mean, to it's... read some of the scientific literature, I'd be like, yeah, okay. That's, I don't even know. What these are words. I, I, so so there's even that barrier of entry for, for someone like me. I, I couldn't even comprehend some of the, the mathematical models and, and things that they're saying. Mm-hmm. But then and you I'm, also, I... when you bring in COVID or climate change, just to use those two kind of big banners there, um, you know, you could say the same thing if we had like food shortages or famines is there, there are large sweeping issues in which you start to debate the question of collectivism versus individualism and how to, you know, rights and all the, all these other issues. So you, it's not mm-hmm. as simple as saying, does the mask work or not? That, that, that's part yeah. of it. There's other issues that compound these problems and make them so, so divisive and, and hard to, to understand. And then there's people who are, right and people who are wrong people who are marginally right marginally wrong and then and then you have a debate over could they have been right could that so like it, it's layer upon layer of these things it's just it, it's never ending yeah. it seems yeah i mean the I, I suppose there's this sort of ideal picture you might have of this with is just on the one hand there's science and science is interpreters and they just sort of lay out the facts and on the other hand there's people who work in public policy politicians and and so on and they take the facts and they also take the the, the values, you know, the political, the the what what people want, what they value, what's good for them, what will make people happy, and kind of put them together with the facts and make decisions. So there's the decision makers on one hand, the scientists on the other. But of course, and COVID gave us some examples of this, I think. Of course, and deciding how to present the facts, um, the scientists or the supposed objective interpreters of science are going to and probably should take into account um, the good of the good of society. So you're going to think a little bit about your message. I mean, to take another, ex- a completely different example, which is maybe a little bit, is it less controversial? Well, at least it's. You're in the war room. Right as controversial as you want. Go ahead. <laughs> take something like um, um, knowledge about um, uh, engineering 
um, viruses to for 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 um, for the purposes of war, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. germ warfare yeah. or uh, nuclear engineering to create nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Scientists should take into account the risks of of simply kind of, as it were, yeah. spilling the beans, divulging everything they know to the public. It's, it, it would be it's not realistic and probably dangerous to set up a situation where the scientists just kind of unload everything they know and leave it up to um, politicians and, and, and bureaucrats and, and so on to, to do the right thing with that information. So it's going to be complicated. There's going to be an intermediate zone where people are kind of have triple guessing, you know, second triple guessing themselves, um, um, trying to figure out what the right thing to say is given everything that's going on. How does, Uh, from the scientific standpoint, um, and from your standpoint, how does beauty play into this? Because I'll have guests on and they'll say, this is a logical argument, A, B, C, D. You know, it's like, okay, great. But but so many arguments are not won by logic. They're won by an appeal to beauty. How does that weigh into this discussion? Well, on the one hand, there's, there's, there's the kinds of appeals to beauty that say uh, a physicist, physicists uh, find often, or fundamental physicists, people working in, you know, um, string theory or, or, mm-hmm. or relativity or whatever, they make these appeals to the beauty of a theory as a sign of its truth. So that's that's a, typically a kind of mathematical beauty or elegance or symmetry, something I write about quite a bit in my book. That's one kind, that's a certain kind of beauty. Then I'm not sure if you have that primarily in mind, but there's a different kind of beauty, which is uh, you might say is more connected to eloquence yeah. with the forceful or persuasive presentation of arguments. Mm. Yes. So in as I as I write in my book, neither of these is supposed to play a role in in official scientific communication. So whatever's going on in a scientist's own head, and I think scientists are human, everything is going on in their heads, just like with all of us. But there's there's a sort of ideal for the presentation of scientific information in, in scientific journals and so on, you know, the official archives of scientific research that says no appeals to beauty, no attempts at eloquence. Just the facts, just lay down the bare facts um, and nothing more. It's kind of an almost impossible demand to satisfy. But that that um, that is an ideal in science, which really strongly affects uh, the way that science scientific results are, are presented and actually has the has the consequence that scientists end up saying a lot less than they're thinking. Yeah. So a scientist like one of those physicists may be thinking one reason to, to really believe that this theory is on the right track is its formal elegance or beauty, but they won't, they won't be able to argue for their theory on those grounds in their mm-hmm. writing. So they're actually keeping back something they consider to be a really important consideration. This mm-hmm. is, this is why I say there's a sense in which science is, is strictly speaking irrational because <laughs> uh, it forbids scientists from, from, laying down things that they think are really important. Is there a way that you think that scientists could thread that needle of just the facts, but also these extra bits of information um, or has science kind of progressed to a spot to where it is just ones and zeros, you know, like it's just pretty much data driven. <laughs> well, on the one hand, there are, there are other channels uh, besides official scientific writing. So scientists can, write a popular book or go on a podcast and, and express their views about everything freely. And they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this, I think this very kind of narrow and dry, um, um, these, these strictures about the presentation of scientific results are actually very functional. I think they play the main role in, in, in what I was talking about earlier, which is motivating scientists to really, um, to really be kind of in, empirical data data diggers um, extraordinaire uh, so it's because all you can really do in a in a scientific article is um, is sort of lay down some facts and try to see how theories do in the light of those facts that that the scientific light life becomes one that's oriented ultimately primarily towards unearthing these facts. So this it, it's it sort of almost makes science into this game where where the only good moves are empirical moves, the mm-hmm. provision of more data. And so to be a scientist is to be a data provider, if you like. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at a certain period in history, a couple hundred years ago at least, maybe further back, some some of the scientific work would be um, by scientists who would be relating their work to how they felt it tied into God and the universe and how those things all work together. Do you think that now perhaps it's reactionary to that, like looking back at their forefathers going, well, we don't want to be tied up with that, so therefore we're going to go to just a bare-bones, dry, factual-type presentation? Yeah, I think that that in the course of the scientific revolution, in the so in the, this is in the 1600s, sort of culminating really with Newton's theory of gravity, um, published in the very late 1600s. I think during that time, thinkers, people you might look back on and think, broadly speaking, they were scientists, went from presenting their ideas in a very kind of holistic framework, which typically would have included the theological elements of their thinking, and so the role of of God uh, and so on in their religion, you know, here I'm thinking mainly of Western Europeans, so the Christian religions, they went from doing that to to a new style of presentation, the one I was just talking about, where none of that stuff is is as it were allowed into the official channels. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see this process in action if you look at the way scientific writing develops. The it's not as if scientists are necessarily any less religious in their in their own commitments mm-hmm. or even in their thinking, especially when it comes to questions about the origins of life and so on. Um, but they kind of obey this set of rules that says just stick to the stick to what you can dig up in effect. Which right. um, so I, I talk a little bit, for example, about about William Puell, uh, who uh, was a uh, a scientist of the early eighteen hundreds, and um, the way that he 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 is he is explaining. Um, this, this is a time when, when because of the Industrial Revolution, people are digging canals and laying railroad tracks and so on. And for the first time en masse, all of these fossils of dinosaurs and so on are coming to light. And it, people begin to realize there was a time when the Earth's surface was populated by a really different biology. Mm-hmm. And people are trying to make sense of this in the light of their beliefs, you know, as a, in this case, predominantly Christian beliefs. And someone like Huell is trying to put it all together. And yet at the same time, he's the rules of science prevent him from putting it together. And a nice thing about his writing is he kind of comments on this and says, well, of course, we can't really talk about God and God's plan for the world and why God would have created the dinosaurs and then wiped them out and replaced them with mammals or whatever happened. We can't talk about that here because we're doing science. Mm-hmm. We just have to stick with what we can see in the fossil record, which is that there were these successive waves of forms of life. Mm-hmm. So that's all I can do here. But then he turns around and, and no longer writing as a scientist, he he gives a, a popular lecture where he tries to connect it all together and talks about the signs of God's plan in the world and so on. So by this stage, things are really completely different from the 1600s when, when you had this very, very integrated, holistic, philosophical way of, of thinking about the universe. Yeah, and when I was asking about Aristotle earlier, that's part of what I was touching on is that you you have these big complex things and you have this very granular thing and how is it relevant? What's the point? And so, you know, does it does it tie in? And, and some of that is kind of seems to be gone for good or bad or better or worse. It's just it's just not the way that we. You, you, I think there's a way to try to do both because you one without the other is almost not useless, but it, it you you need both, and it's hard to answer the relevance of both sometimes. Like these aren't very clear cut things, and so. You know they're they're very very complex. Um, help yes. me understand. Help me understand complexity theory. In the, in the, oh, okay. In the, yeah, we got fifteen <laughs> minutes. Go ahead and unpack it. So I'll get it. And I'll have it knocked out. I guess there's a big question right now about whether we really have the tools to understand complexity and all of its manifestations or not. It might be that we do. And we just now have to do a lot of hard work. So there's lots of complex systems we don't understand, right? The human mind is an obvious case. Mm-hmm. Or the way that that the genome of a complicated organism, um, like a like a human or a dog or an octopus, how that gets kind of, as it were, orchestrates the whole process by which an embryo grows into this very complicated biological structure, um, mm-hmm. a full-grown organism those are two cases where we're really just beginning to figure out figure out um, um what's going on 
and and you know we're really if we're one percent of the way there that would be an optimistic take on it i would say so but the question is is it is it that we have all the the mathematical techniques or the right kinds of concepts of causation or or whatever um we have all that stuff and it's just that this is a these are very hard problems and so we need to keep working at them um throw a lot more time and money at them or is it that is it that we actually need new ideas um new structures uh and so on if we're really going to um going to going to answer our questions and i think the uh, uh the reason that what people often call complexity theory is really exciting um is that it is a kind of a search for some new techniques just new ways of thinking about 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 the ways that little simpler bits and pieces can go together to create a whole new kinds of behavior like um uh uh like uh, the behavior of a thinking um goal directed organism which lays down plans and so on and so mm. forth so if we understood this is going back to something I said earlier about when you go back and look at previous scientific information, the ability to measure the information that we had, how accurate was it? If we understood how complex things are as we do today, whatever degree we understand that, and if we were to take that information mm. back two, 300, 400 years ago, how much different would we think about science as a whole? Because it, it feels like we're, we're at this point to where, where now we're beginning to understand, yeah, things are bizarre. Like they are deep. They're weird. But if you go back and look at maybe how Darwin understood the world, he couldn't have envisioned anything remotely close to what we understand about it. But a lot of things are built upon his idea or Newton's idea or insert scientists here. A lot of things are built upon that. So how do you go back and reevaluate their starting spot versus where we're at today and making sure that we built upon it properly? Well, they obviously made a lot of progress on the kinds of questions they were asking using using the tools they had at the time. Uh, you know, from our perspective, it seems like they really did largely succeed in, in in what they were doing. I mean, we now have more sophisticated versions of their ideas, but it seems like they really did succeed. To me, the to me the question is really whether those methods are going to keep on working. You know, whether even you know even the or an even bigger question whether the whole way we've organized science is going to keep on working. You know, I've said it's very, very empirically focused, very focused on data. It's just sort of, you know, so there you have, say, in neuroscience, you have a lot of people just kind of mapping out the physical structure of the brain or putting people in MRI machines to see where the blood flows when they're solving certain problems and um, and using various other kinds of techniques with um, uh, 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 animals and so on. Um, and this is very much the science of the last two or 300 years uh, you know, just just kind of creating a in in the same way that once upon a time those those engineers were digging through the strata of rock, just building up a map of those strata without yet understanding what it was telling us about the history of the planet, mm-hmm. or or um, or uh, writing down these very detailed observations about the movements of the planets without yet understanding. Uh, how this would give rise to a new theory of gravity. So a lot of the work that's going on now in the sciences I was talking about, neuroscience, developmental genetics, and so on, is is kind of just compiling these these kinds of details. The thing is, though, these structures are so complicated that the amount of detail there is to to map, as it were, is is vast, much vaster than in the case of the geology of the entire surface of the planet (laughs) um, or the movements of the solar system and so on. So maybe that's not quite the right approach. Maybe we do need a more kind of idea-driven approach, Mm. could a more holistic approach, an approach that's a little bit more like the the ways of doing, thinking about the world that came before modern science, a more philosophical approach, if you like. I, I myself don't, I don't know whether we do or not, although I find the question incredibly interesting. Yeah, we had on uh, Lars. Um, oh gosh, the bee guy. I can't remember his last name. Chitska. Um, and he was he was talking about the the, the mind of the bee and how little they can actually map the mind of a bee. <laughs> right, which is so much smaller, and, right? Then <laughs> you have no shot to get this thing. And my head's my head's uh, not very. There's not a lot in there, but it, it's it's extra large cranium, and so there's a lot to map. And it's just it's like yeah, if you can't so. So there is that question of, do you progress forward? Do you push forward? 
Um, and then to your point, there is a question of other, other relevance. What might you find as you push forward? It, it, is there a sense in which you can look for the, like maybe like the law of diminishing returns and you're, you're going, hey, you know, we're getting so granular, but actually the returns aren't really helping us. Is that kind of what you're, you're, you're espousing there? Um, yeah, yeah. Or in a way it's that the, I guess you could think about it that way or a different way of thinking about it is we're getting just as much returns, but, but given that the, since the problem is exponentially bigger, that yeah. rate of returns is just not enough anymore to make oh, progress. Yeah, I got you. So you've kind of, you've kind of peaked and you're just flatlining in this. Yes. Yeah, this okay. Hmm. What works really well when you're, you know, filling a filling a teacup one teaspoon at a time it takes a while, but you'll mm. get there. Mm. But you know, filling an ocean one teaspoon at a time, yeah, you I need gotcha. to find the method. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Where do you think scientists land on this issue that you're 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 contemplating here? Uh, because, as you said earlier, they they like to get in there, like to hone down. And you're kind of saying, well, maybe you guys should rethink that the value of that. Yeah, and what we've done, I mean, the reason the science works so well is that we've created this in the last few hundred years, this 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 a, a particular kind of game. And to get ahead in science, you've got to play that game. So in some sense, scientists are the the same, the same high level of motivation that makes them so good at at, at uncovering the facts uh that that have have been so useful in the past that same motivational structure is now strongly constraining them um uh it's they are looking at a situation where if if they stop playing the game people won't call them scientists anymore they won't get grants uh they won't get positions postdocs and so on Mm -hmm. they kind of even if they themselves may be thinking the very same thoughts that i'm thinking here with you right now Mm -hmm. their practice practical situation kind of as it were is is really precludes them acting on them they're they're kind of they're they're in a situation where they just need to keep doing the same old thing or else they they don't have a career anymore do you so think, um we go on i would say do you think that um we are looking at a a new at least for media um and and the economy has changed a lot you know the the gig economy the ability to be fractional um, media places like this um, that are, that aren't, you know, CBS, NBC. Um, and so you've seen a, a, a way to look at the economy where people don't have to do traditional anymore. Do you think that the scientific community will benefit from that? So if people could publish on Substack or, or wherever long papers are paid for by readers that could help fund their research that way. That's an interesting suggestion. One of the, I mean, one of the problems, I, I guess actually this is a problem anyone anyone um, who is who's aspiring to kind of have some presence uh, in the media today has is is, 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 is is even if you have all the support you need, you know, you have a lifetime income for some reason, you need readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not, not, not much point in putting this stuff out there unless you can get people to actually look at it. Right. And science is complicated. Uh, uh, if everyone just starts writing their stuff according to their own rules and publishing it online, okay, in some sense it's there, but in another sense it's not there at all unless mm-hmm. people are reading it right. Mm-hmm. And so we already have, in some areas of science, you have these, um, they're called, uh, uh, often called archives, but uh, preprint archives. What they re- really are is places you can publish stuff that's, that's not in the journals. Maybe it will be published in a journal. Maybe it couldn't be published in a journal because it doesn't follow these rules I'm talking about. Mm. And it sits there and in theory, people can go and read it and think about it, comment on it and so on. But but I think quite a bit just sits there yes, without yeah. any of that stuff happening. Yeah. So there's a kind of a, there's something to be said for the, the sort of the, the narrow, the, one thing about the narrowness of modern science is it's sort of, kind of gets people all together thinking one way mm. um, rather than having people so spread out that, 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 that no progress is made anywhere. Mm. You, you need some kind of some in, but we need something that's maybe less, less focused on the traditional ways of doing things and, but still very focused so mm. that you can have a, 
a critical mass of of thinkers of scientists all thinking about each other's writing and seeing what can be gotten out of it rather than just a uh, uh, the the kind of the the spray gun kind of um, right. dissemination of ideas. Yeah, you don't you want a scientist. Yeah, you don't want scientists having me weigh in on their on their actual work because I'm not qualified to understand the the mathematical models, whatever tools or I don't know any of that stuff. I know I don't even know the right words to put in these sentences, much less understand it. Um, I can hear them talk about it and say you know ask questions, but beyond that, I, so I'm not qualified. To, to to at a certain level to enter that discussion. So you're right. You need the qualified people to to come in there. Um, but it'd probably be helpful for them to get more questions from the the dummies like me going, "Hey, what about this? What about this?" And so they could tease out how better to explain it to us. Mm-hmm. And it would probably help raise questions for them to go, "Oh, yeah, let me go back and and look at the relevance of this or or whatever." So um, yeah, I can I can see the the pitfall there of of just appealing to the masses constantly is you don't actually get the expert review that you need. And that stuff takes so much time. I mean, even even if you have all the technical know-how, to understand somebody else's mathematical theory might take you a week of hard work. Now, how do you know it's worth putting in that week? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's... Without understanding the theory. Okay. So I have asked all the questions as a commenter. I think I can, but I'm sure I've missed some things. What would, before we get off here, Give me some things, some practical things for people like me to think about, to contemplate on. Obviously, we're linked to the book, but just things we didn't cover. You go, hey, listen, I'm talking to the average Joe. I like to bring these points up as well. Mm, so things we haven't talked about yet. Um, my mind is full of the things that we have talked about, <laughs> which has been a lot. Um you know, I want. I mean, this is this is this is in this similar vein. But I really want ordinary people can't expect to kind of understand science uh, any large amount of science and any depth, of course. But I want people to understand what science is like, the kind of process that it is, the what scientific the fruits of scientific research really look like, so that they can have realistic expectations for what science can and can't do uh you know and and in particular to sort of get past this idea that science is just this sort of voice of authority that that lays out the answers so as to be able to understand when that when when science is looking confused or uncertain that's not science going wrong that's science kind of operating according to its Mm -hmm. to, to the manual that's the way it's supposed to be so i think i think Presenting a kind of realistic picture of science that still shows why, uh, why, why, it, why it really works most of the time, you know, why we should, why our default attitude should be to think it's on the right track, which is not to say that we shouldn't be, you know, somewhat, um, um, we shouldn't have our wits about us. Yeah. Uh, that 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 I think is a really important job for people people like me uh, and you and doing these podcasts and so on to 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 do to 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 kind of get get a more realistic picture of science and its strengths um uh across to the general public and to enter the enter the policymakers and so on who rely on science for for to make good decisions okay that's helpful okay we're going to link to the book in the show notes obviously you have a uh website as well we'll link to that is there anywhere else that you want us to send people to um no i think that's that's those those are the places yeah (laughs) awesome well thank you so much for your time today well thank you that was that was a lot of fun ryan hey you made it to the end of this episode thank you so much now i'm going to ask a favor if you enjoyed it would you drop a five star somewhere and if you really enjoyed it would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com helps keep the show going and ad free Thank you so much.